0: (laughs) All right, uh, we're going to finish up our little series we've been doing on Acts chapter 10, and the story of Peter and his uh, very puzzling vision. If you remember in this story, uh, Peter has this really strange vision of uh, this sheet, and on it are all these Unclean animals, which were unclean for the folks back then to eat, which would be things like pork and bacon and a lot of seafood that we eat A lot of foods we eat were on there. But in the back of that day, I mean, there were chapters, chapters in the Old Testament on unclean foods and unclean animals. and And in this vision Peter has, there's all these unclean foods on the sheet. And as it's coming down, God says to Peter, get up, kill and eat. In other words, God tells Peter to eat what is on this sheet that's coming down, but I mean obviously Peter is very confused because there are scripture passages, literally chapters in the Old Testament say you can't eat this food. And, and you can imagine Peter being perplexed in terms of God is asking me to do something that scripture says I can't do. And so God repeats this vision three times times, and in the end, we kind of been focusing in on this verse of the idea that Peter was very perplexed, so what could this vision mean? And I think we would be super complex, perplexed, and sometimes we are when God speaks, because God doesn't always speak clearly, Uh, but especially if God, like in this situation, told us to do something that was against Scripture, and that's what God is telling Peter to do. So he's puzzling over this vision, like how in the world is God asking me to do something that Scripture says I shouldn't? And today we get to find out the answer or the mystery to this vision. And to do that, we have to travel uh, north uh, from Peter to a city called Caesarea, which was, uh, you know, if you pictured like super fundamentalistic conservatives today and how they view Las Vegas... That's how a lot of people would view Caesarea of the day. It was like the crazy town. Uh, It was sort of the headquarters of the Roman government over Judea. There was a big temple to Caesar. Uh, Jewish people didn't really like that town. And uh, the Jews that did live there, there was a lot of fighting between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. In fact, when the, the Jewish revolt began to happen in between 60 and 70 AD that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus, a historian, actually says that 20,000 Jews were, all the Jews in Caesarea were killed, 20,000 of them uh, in this city. And in this crazy sort of Las Vegas-ish town, um, there's a guy there by the name of Cornelius. And he is a Roman soldier, Uh, not just a Roman soldier, but he is like a, you know, kind of head-hunter Roman soldier. He's in charge of a hundred men. He is a centurion. And uh, this is what the story says about him. It says, In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was captain of the entire uh, Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. And it's interesting how Scripture describes this person, because he doesn't know Jesus. Uh, He wouldn't be called a Christian at that time, Uh, and yet he's described as a devout, God-fearing man who was generous and prayed regularly, gave regularly to the poor. And it says, One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. Uh, what is it, sir, he asked the angel, and the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Uh, so here he has this guy, he is no Jesus, yet God is clearly speaking to him. And God is actually pleased with them. And, uh, and this is a reminder because there is what I think is a toxic teaching out there, and sometimes in Christianity, where, you know, if you don't have faith in God, then God doesn't like anything you do, you know. Uh, well, here we see a guy who doesn't know Jesus, and God speaks to him in a vision, and he, his gifts and his love to poor people were received as an offering to God, and, and God's clearly at work in his life. And God is clearly at work not just in us. Uh, but in a lot of people. And God's at work all around us. And when you begin to see that God doesn't just work in the church, but God works in a lot of other places, then it really helps you uh, connect with what God is doing in this world. In fact, I like this little cartoon. It sort of talks about the two views of how some folks see God. And on the left, you see that God only works within the church walls. And that's it. Doesn't do anything outside of that. And then the other view of God is that God is at work all over this world. And yes, he's at work in the church because the church is in there. And, and I, I really lean to the, this view that God is at work in the world. And you see God at work in all kinds of people and all kinds of folks. And, and, uh, and, and when, you, when you get that, it really helps you to love people. And it really helps you to ask the question, God, what are you doing in this person's life? And, and God, how can I join you? Because God is at work all over the place. He, he was at work in Cornelius. And instead of just thinking God only works in the church, then we start asking the question, God, what are you doing in this situation? God, where are you work at this person's life or how are you at work in, in this, this situation um, that I find myself in. He's at work in your workplace and he's at work in your school and he's at work uh, when you're driving down the road. And he's at work all over the place. God isn't just stuck in a box called the church. Um, I, like a, I like, I think as a say, I think, forget, I forget, mean maybe it was Brad Drozak or something who said that. He says, not every path leads to God, but God is at work on every path, and I really believe that. Uh, God is at work on every path, and, and it's up to us to, to say, hey, you know, God, where are you working? And so God is working in Cornelius' life, and he's, Cornelius is somebody who's seeking God, he's hungry after God, and, and God gives him this vision of his next step, and his vision is of this, this guy named Peter, who we've been looking at in the story. So in this vision, uh, it says, God, the angel tells Cornelius, now send some men to Joppa and someone, a man named Simon Peter. And it's interesting, the angel didn't say, you know, Cornelius, go down to Joppa. He he makes Peter do the work. Peter's got to come up. And he, he is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened, and he sent them off to Joppa. So uh, he sends a few of these guys from Caesarea all the way down to Joppa, which would be a very long day's walk, or maybe a day and a half if you wanted to take a break. And so he sends these men down to Joppa. And meanwhile, as these men are approaching Joppa, this is where the story happens that we've been looking at for the last number of weeks where Peter in the meantime is having this crazy vision of these, this sheet coming down with you know, bacon and bacon wrapped scallops and all that great food and, and, uh, and he's perplexed because God is asking him to do something that scripture says he shouldn't and, and right at that moment as, as this text says as we've looked at as Peter was puzzling over the vision the Holy Spirit said to him three men have come looking for you get up go downstairs and go with them without hesitation don't worry for I have sent them so Peter went down and said he sees these guys they're there I'm the man you're looking for like you talk about timing I mean, you think about all the things that could have gone wrong. But these guys had to, Cornelius had to have the vision. He had to believe it and actually act on it and send these men all the way from Caesarea jo- uh, all the way down to Joppa. And who knows, they could have stopped at McDonald's for longer than they should have. And all these things could have happened. But just at the right time, when Peter's trying to figure out this vision, like, God, you're asking me to do something that Scripture says I shouldn't, he comes down, these three guys are there. Talk about timing. And sometimes it's amazing how God works out timing in our lives. And we're like, how in the world did all these things just line up just the way it's supposed to? Though so if you're like me, we wish that would happen more. Uh, but it happens sometimes, and it happened here, where the timing just worked out amazingly. And, uh, and, and so, again, this idea that whenever God speaks to you and he's asking you to do something risky, look for confirmation. God is asking Peter to do something very risky to go against the scriptures he knew So again, God repeats the vision three times, and there's this confirmation of these three guys who are actually kind of the answer to the vision. They show up at just the right time when uh, Peter has this vision. So he asks them, why have you come? And he said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men in to stay for the night. The next day he went with them accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. So Peter takes some of his guys and they, this little trek up to, to Caesarea. And they arrived in Caesarea the following day. And Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And you might do that too if you had an angel pop up at your house and tell you something crazy. And, uh, and you know this Peter guy's coming? I might invite a crowd around too. And so Peter has, uh, Cornelius has a bunch of his relatives and close friends there. And as Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, Stand up, I'm a human being just like you. Peter does something crazy here. He goes into the home of a Gentile, which is a big no-no. That was against their religious rules, against their, their religious laws. You could not associate with a Gentile. You couldn't go into a Gentile's house. But something's going on in Peter's mind. Uh, because of his vision, because of his experience with years with Jesus. There's something changing in him about how he sees other people. And he walks right into this home, which would be forbidden to him. And this guy kind of comes down and he worships him, which actually was a very common way to greet people who were kind of high up. The well, way you would greet a, uh, you know, a famous person or a, uh, someone who was a hero, you would do that. But Peter says, hey, to stand up. I'm a human being just like you. You know, there are a lot of people who would maybe not say that, who might appreciate someone bowing down to worship them and honoring you as a hero. Uh, But Peter, uh, there's something, and again, this is a Gentile. The Jews didn't really associate with Gentile people, and there's something going on in Peter's heart here. For Maybe for the first time, he looks at this Gentile, and he says, you're a human being just like me. Because in many ways, suddenly, if you grew up in that world, in that culture, you would not see Gentiles as full human beings. They'd be kind of less than human beings or half human beings or not. They don't have the privileges like we do. But something's going on, and, and Peter says, you are a human being just like me. And that's how we've got to see people. Right? no matter who they are, what their background is, what their color of skin is, what their economic status is. You're a human being just like me. And all of us together are trying to struggle through the, the messiness of Life And so and just to make this more clear, the next verse is, so they talked together and went inside, where many others were assembled. Peter told them, "You know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you." So again, Peter's having a revolution. He is going against his customs. He had this vision, which was, you know, God told him to go against Scripture. There's probably a lot of stuff going on in his mind, but I think he has good reasoning because he probably remembers the teachings in the life and the model of Jesus, who who did things just like this, like in John four. I mean, it states clearly in the scriptures: for Jews, do not associate with Samaritans, where when they were not full Gentiles, they were kind of half Jew, half Gentile folks. Um, But Jesus challenged those things and you know, when Jesus was talking to the woman at his wells, at the well, it says the disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Not only was he talking to a woman, he was talking to a Samaritan woman, but, but Jesus was challenging all of these barriers and stereotypes and looking at other people as less than human. And Jesus had no problem hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles and Samaritans, and, but it was such part of the world for the disciples and for Peter that this, this would take a radical shift for them. And he begins to realize, and really what the vision means is when this food is coming down, that, that he's not specifically talking about food, that to eat this food, but it's, it's, a, it's a picture of people. And how we see people at times that are unclean, or those people are unworthy, or they're less than human, or, you know, I can't associate with those people, just like the Jews couldn't associate with the Gentiles. But God is saying, accept them. Meet with them. Hang out with them. Eat with them. Dine with them. And we do know, of course, that Jesus did tell us all foods are clean, so if you want to eat bacon, go for it. But if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, it's fine too. You can eat your your other stuff too. It's all good. Uh, And so, in Acts chapter 10, the very next verse, so Peter says, I can't go into these houses, but he does, and he says, but God has shown me, and this this is the mystery of that whole vision. He he finally clues in, this is what God is saying. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone impure or unclean, implying that before he did, that this was pushed into his culture, that the Gentiles or Samaritans, that they were impure and they were unclean. And a lot of times you wouldn't, if you really wanted to be holy for God in those days, you wouldn't buy pottery or food or anything made by a Gentile because it was unclean. You'd never go into a house you wouldn't associate with them. But God is doing a radical shift. He's, he's bringing this world to a more Christ-like world as he's still doing today. Taking people who see others unclean and radically trying to change them to actually be people who see mankind as they should be as these are just fellow humans like me struggling through life. And, and then later Peter will say, as again he's reflecting on this vision, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. And this is what God will just be working in our hearts, that, that we as well are not see, to see people through the lenses of favoritism. We are to not see people through clean and unclean or pure and, and, and impure, that we are see people as clean, as people that God loves. Uh, all people on this planet and all humans, they're, they're, they're full human beings. As Paul would later, later reflect and say, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, which is a huge statement. I mean, you read a lot of the New Testament actually is dealing with this conflict between the Jewish people and the Gentile. You know the whole book of Romans, you know the main point of it, and we don't know this because we're stuck 2,000 years later than the Bible was written, but the whole focus of the book of Romans is actually the conflict between the Jewish and Gentile Christians, <laughs> trying to get them to get along, and, and Paul says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. Slave or free male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all clean. You are all pure. You are all the family of God. You are all human beings or Colossians. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now sadly, this vision of Jesus trying to move people forward to this where we could actually see other people as humans and and see other people as as pure and clean is actually it's still not a reality in our world. I mean especially during this pandemic I mean there have been a lot of reports of things like racism and seeing other people as unclean or it's just rising incredibly. In fact I couldn't find any super recent stats but this was from last year Uh, but it was uh, Stats Canada did a study and. It was the percent of participants who reported having experienced dis- dis- discrimination since the start of the pandemic. And that was like August last year. So really, that was like maybe only like five or six months into the pandemic We're a whole year later. But it shows that if you're not a visible minority, I mean, you know, there's a little bit of discrimination, but nothing nearly like if you are a minority in this country. I mean, racism is still very much alive. This idea of seeing people as impure or unclean or less than human is still very much alive in this in this country. Um, You know, there are a lot of these videos on YouTube which shows that we tend to favor certain people than others based on stereotypes. I mean, they do these funny, you know, social experiments. And and there's a lot of them, but, you know, there's a few of them where it's like the rich person versus the poor person. They both hold up a sign that's saying money. And the crazy thing is, is that almost all people give money to the rich person. Uh, because, you know, we are kind of, because they're like, well, maybe we're more familiar with those people or, you know, they, they seem more comfortable or maybe they feel more safe or whatever it might be. Or, that We still show favoritism. There's still a subtle thing in the country where we, we, can, we sometimes can look down at, at poor people. Uh, I mean, they did another one where they had like a rich guy, and I think I talked about this once, where they had a rich guy dressed up in a business suit. Walking down a crowded sidewalk and, and he pretends to have a heart attack and he stumbles and, and he falls on the ground and, and immediately people would come up and surround him and say, you okay? And people would gra- start grabbing their phones to call 911. They would stop. They'd jump and say, oh, this is just an experiment. But then they dressed up the same guy on the same busy sidewalk and put him in like, you know, kind of like homeless clothes. And he walked along and stumbled along and fell on the ground and almost every time nobody stopped. They would just walk around him walk over him. And uh, it just shows, again, that we have not got the message of Jesus in our heart. Uh, this still is a struggle. This still is an issue. And, and, um, and when I say, well, the church is doing better at this, <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, Dr. Klein Snodgrass, who's a scholar, just talked about some of the mission work that's been done. And he says, the evangelical church in particular has such a bad record in areas of prejudice and condoning race and class distinctions, Muslims are now exploiting this by proclaiming the Brotherhood of Islam as an alternative to the prejudice of Christians. And Islam is growing with converts from Christianity among peoples who were once treated inferior by other Christians. And a lot of the history of missions is tainted with racism and discriminations. And, and I mean, just look at what happened with the residential schools in, in, in Canada and all that horrible stuff that is, has been coming out over the last number, number of years. Robert P. Jones, who is a Christian himself, who, he's the, the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. Again, he's a Christian himself. He says this, for more than two decades, I've studied the attitudes of religiously affiliated Americans. So this is the U.S., And year over year, in question after question, in public opinion polls, a clear pattern has emerged. White Christians are consistently more likely than whites who are religiously unaffiliated to deny the existence of structural racism. He goes on to say, statistic models refute the assertion that attending church makes white Christians less racist. Among white evangelicals, in fact, the opposite is true. The relationship between holding racist views and white Christian identity is actually stronger among more frequent church attenders than among less frequent church attenders. And you might be like, what happened? How in the world that could be? Because that doesn't line up with Jesus. <laughs> that doesn't line up with the, the trajectory of where Scripture is pointing. Like, what in the world is going on when the folks who are supposed to be in church following Jesus are doing the exact opposite thing that Jesus Uh, talked about, Uh, and sometimes, you know, he talks about how, you know, sometimes Christians can even fool themselves a bit in this area, where he says, white Christians think of themselves as people who hold warm feelings towards African Americans, while simultaneously embracing a host of racist attitudes that are inconsistent with that assertion. In other words, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm not racist, or I don't see anybody impure, I don't see those folks as unclean, but when they do these more in-depth studies, they find out that a lot of times it's actually not true, and and we know that the actions in the the puttings in the action, or well, there's some phrase like that, isn't there? I don't know, I, you know it's not, not what you say, but it's it's what you actually do, and how you live that out. And so uh, this Christian Robert P. Jones is saying, you know, uh, definitely in the American church there's an issue, uh, and then some of the Canadian church tends to be maybe not quite as conservative in some ways, but there's association there there for sure. Uh, But Peter says, you know, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. And he says, again, God shows no favoritism. But, you know, the funny thing is that even Peter, who had this incredible experience of this vision, and he, he says these things, even he really messed up in this area. And it's a lesson to us that we can kind of say, "Well, I'm not racist. I don't look down on other people. You know, I got it all together." I mean, Peter might have said this at this time, but you know what? There's another story in the Book of Galatians where he actually begins once again to see the Gentiles as impure, and he begins once again to see them as unclean, and he once again begins to stay away from the Gentile folks. And the story is found in Acts chapter two, and so this is this is after this experience. It said, when Peter came to Antioch, this is, this, is, this is Paul writing, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. So here's Paul <laughs> saying that Peter messed up so bad that I opposed him to his his face. And he says, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers. So again, he was living out this, this message of Jesus out of, out of his revelation. He would go to a Gentile's house and eat with them and hang out with them. But afterward... When some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here's this whole group of, of church leaders who were supposedly following Jesus and teaching Jesus, and they, they get stuck in this, this racist kind of, you know, you're less than human, I'm going to stay away from you, uh, because they were living in fear and fear and slipping from the message of Jesus. So Paul says, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, this is how Paul sees it. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, you're slipping in this area. He says, Peter, you are actually slipping from the gospel message. And then he says this, I said to Peter in front of all the others. So Peter, Paul didn't, you know how you would just say, you know, you know, confront people in private, you know. Uh, Paul doesn't do that. He just seen as such a serious gospel issue, such a corrupt view of Christianity at that time, that he just says in very of everybody, he says, what you are doing is not following the gospel message. And he says, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law, because he are again fighting over those who are circumcised and not circumcised. And, and he says, this is not the gospel. And whenever the church, or any of us, or any Canadian, you know, begins to discriminate or look down on folks or see them as less than human or impure or unclean, that is not following the gospel. That's what Paul does. He says, you're not following the gospel. Uh, Let me just read more from Robert P. Jones and what he wrote here. He says, I suspect many of my fellow white Christians will be appalled by these findings. The findings that, again, that there's a correlation between those who attend church and being racist. How can this be? (laughs) Haven't white Christians created charities of all kinds, built the infrastructure of much of our civil society and provided leadership on a host of social reforms, including the abolitionist movement, which was led in part by Christians moved by their faith. And uh, he says, yeah, but when we allow ourselves to cast our gaze beyond the rosy stories we tell ourselves as champions and representatives of all that is good in America, a terrifying, troubled, alternative history emerges. And sometimes we don't talk a lot about this in church. But he is... He says, the unsettled truth is that for nearly all of American history, the light-skinned Jesus conjured up by most white congregations was not merely indifferent to the status quo of racial inequity. He demanded its defense and pres- preservation as part of the natural, divinely ordered, or, uh, ordained order of things. And, and in fact, the church was putting God behind the racist uh, ideologies. Again, this is often This is kind of our American Jesus, <laughs> you know. Nice blonde, nice hair, totally white skin. And, and so we just, this, he's just saying part of this gets ingrained in us, that that was Jesus and he was the white person. And you know I look down on some folks, so he could look down on some folks. But, but Jesus was not white. I mean, he grew up in ancient Palestine, and, and he was a Middle Eastern Jewish person. In fact, uh, scientists have... Um, kind of study the area and the time and some of the descriptions they can find in the scripture. This is what they think Jesus actually looked like. You know, some people might consider him like a Muslim or a terrorist or something these days, the way he looks. Or a lot of people would look at Jesus today and, and probably discriminate against him because it's been so saturated that Jesus was just some white blonde dude. Uh, he wasn't. He, he was a Jewish man from ancient Palestine. I think what's honest is consider the cultural context in which American Christianity, which European Christianity, Western Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic was born. In the 18th and 19th centuries, as Protestant churches were springing up in newly settled territories after Native American population were forcibly removed, it was just common practice to do those things, to, to kick out the natives, and you know, the church was in on, on some of that stuff. And again, the issue in Canada with the, the residential schools. The practice... Uh, uh, had it that whites sat in the front while enslaved blacks sat in the back or in specially constructed galleries above, like in churches where like, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and, and yet many churches for, for years had segregated blacks at the back, whites at the front, in late 18th century Maryland, one-fifth of those included in a Catholic census were enslaved people, owned by white Catholics or white Catholic institutions. As, and as late as the 1940s, urban Catholic parishes in major black cities such as New York still required black members to sit in the back pews and approach the altar last to receive the bread and wine of the Eucharist. The plain testimony of history is that alongside what good we white Christians have done, white Christian theology and institutions have also declared the blessing of God on the enslavement of millions of African-Americans, the construction of a brutal system of racist, uh, racial segregation enforced by law and lynchings, the resistance to the civil rights movement, and the mass incarcerations of millions of African-Americans. When the patterns in the current public opinion data are seen in this light, they seem unsurprising and indeed inevitable. A combination of social forces and demographic changes have brought the country to a crossroads. We, white Christians, must find the courage to face the fact that the version of Christianity that our ancestors built the faith of our fathers, as the hymn celebrates it, was a cultural force that, by design, protected and propagated white supremacy. We have inherited this tradition with scant uh, critique, scant critique, and we have a moral and religious obligation to face the burden of that history and its demands upon our present. Inaction is a tacit blessing on white supremacy's continued presence as a Christian habit and virtue. Doing nothing will ensure. That even despite our best conscious intentions, we will continue to be blind to the racial injustice all around us, and uh, and you can find some of those writings in the book. But he's just a lot of studies, and he's just saying, look, I mean, uh, sometimes we blind ourselves as a church to think that that we're not racist people or we don't discriminate others. But he's just saying that all the studies show that it's an issue in the church, and so we need to continually going back to Jesus, go back to his message. And uh, and living this this, this idea out, um, uh, Jesus uh, does not want that kind of thing. So the question today is whether we white Christians will also awaken to see what has happened to us and grasp once and for all how white supremacy has robbed us of our own heritage and our ability to be in right relationships with our fellow citizens, with ourselves, and even with God. As Paul said, this is a gospel issue, Paul said. We have to accept given the way in which white supremacy has uh, burrowed into Christian identity that refusing to address the sinister disorder in our faith will continue to generate serious negative consequences not just for our fellow Americans but also for ourselves and our children. I love this quote by Donald Macedo from a book I'm just reading. He says, A semi-human who pursues the process of uh, othering human beings... So as to devalue and typecast them has already lost his or her humanity to the extent that he or she cannot see humanity in others. In other words, when you can't see others as human, you lose something. When you can't see someone as fully human, as Jesus sees us all as fully human, you, you lose something of your own identity. You, you lose, we are all made in the image of God. God so loved the world that as Peter says, you know, when Cornelius bows down, no, get up, I, I'm a fellow human just like you. And we're all fellow humans in this world. And God is at work in this world and he, he's moving us into love. And, and the church has got some work to do in certain areas. That, that is, is for sure. Because Jesus himself is the one who who broke down this division as we finish up here with Ephesians 2. Where it says Jesus himself is our peace who has made the two groups. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, but we could fit whatever groups in there. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Hostility by setting aside in his flesh the laws with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. I mean, Jesus is rooting for peace. (laughs) He's rooting for peace among folks and mankind and these divisions and seeing the people as unclean and others as pure. And uh, He's working towards this goal. And and again, that was the summary of the vision. The mystery of the perplexing vision (laughs) was that God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. And I tell you when you begin to see how much God loves you, when you begin to saturate yourself in his love, that you, you can't you just you can't other others, you can't begin to look down on others because you just feel this love and, and to dive into that love of Christ until those barriers are gone. So Father, we we just pray for this the worldwide church. And guys, there's still struggles with things that are just anti-gospel. God, help us to see those around us as as fully human. God, help us to see those around us as you see them. And God, should we just take a moment to pause and just ask us that other people that I see, that I see as impure and clean. And if there are, just take a moment just to repent. Father, we repent. And God, we bask in your love. And we ask again that your love would so saturate our hearts. That we'd so experience your love. God, that it wouldn't matter who we ran into. I would see them as you see them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.